You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Yeah, so good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, Dr. Keith Johnson, Assistant Professor in the area of Technology and Education in the School of Education here in Trinity. And Chen? Hi, everyone. I'm Tian Xiao. Uh, I'm a research fellow in the Human Plus Fellowship, and Vin is my supervisor. Yeah, we'll go uh, dive into my research later. Yeah. Peter. Hi, Peter Gillis, uh, Innovation Team Lead at the Learnovate Centre, Trinity's research centre dedicated to technology enhanced learning. And we're delighted for uh, Peter to chair today's uh, discussion. So the idea is to have short presentations and then a chance for everyone to ask questions and have discussions. So Peter, do you want to just introduce? Sure. So, um, yeah, so my function here today is actually ears open most of the time. So uh, very interested, obviously, in, in the topic here today. Uh, I'm very pleased Vinny's asked me to, to join you guys here today. The chat is about debate. Uh, we're looking forward to questions coming in, both from uh, those on Zoom and from those here in the room, because we're at very early stages of looking at this topic. So, you know, it's all open. Please contribute to the conversation. So. Uh, as Vinny mentioned, we're going to have three talks and um, Keith is going to start us off basically looking at, you know, from an educational perspective, the promise of technology, where are we at, and, and specifically then taking a bit of a deeper dive into AI in that space. So Keith, I'll hand over to you. Uh, so look, uh, thanks uh, Peter for the, uh, the introduction and uh, delighted to join this uh, Tech Talk this afternoon uh, alongside Vinny and Chen. Um, and my input is, uh, it's around setting the current interest and emphasis on AI in education in the broader context of interest in technology in education. As was drawn in my experience as a teacher educator with a particular interest in technology adoption and technology policy for schools. Um, I'm hoping to use this historical and policy-based perspective to identify some lessons which may underpin and inform our current consideration in respect of AI in education. I'll also share some definitions of AI, detail some broad categories of possible AI use within education, and draw attention to what I see as some key challenges or considerations in respect of AI in education. So when we consider the history or trajectory of technology in education, we typically reference two waves. The first wave premised on the coming of the microcomputer in the early uh, 1970s, and the second premised on the coming of the internet in the early 1990s. And each of these technological interventions or catalysts were accompanied by hype and expectation, how they were going to enhance and in the perspectives of some transform education. So the, um, the expectation uh, regarding the potential of the microcomputer and the second wave, the internet, uh, you know, some of the expectations I've noted on this particular slide. Uh, the first around, you know, the possibility for better learning, uh, reflected in the first wave in an expectation for better student performance on standardized test scores. And in the second wave, this shifted somewhat to an expectation for broader educational outcomes, such as enhanced student motivation and engagement. Secondly, an expectation for more student-centred learning and for greater personalisation of learning, with an emphasis on active constructivist pedagogies rather than the established transmission approaches. There are also some more transformational perspectives and discourses evidence, such as the fact that technology might replace the teacher and that technology could be a trigger for changes to fundamentals of the system, the long-established organisational features of formal education, such as the unity of time and place, the school, the classroom, the curriculum. Um, and the presence of a mandated or set curriculum. However, in spite of these transformational expectations, 
it's largely accepted that technology has by and large been assimilated into existing structures and practices. And I reference here the SAMR model for technology adoption, which distinguishes between enhancement and transformational levels. Um, and substitution is referenced at the uh, enhancement level. And the two images here provide illustrations uh, of that uh, type of use. So key commentators such as Larry uh, Cuban and Neil Selwyn have drawn attention to technology's uneasy relationship with education and how for a range of philosophical, ideological and practical reasons, successive technologies have not had the extent of the impact envisaged by some. However, I contend that the last 50 years or so uh, haven't been totally in vain, that based on the experience of attempts towards technology adoption, we can identify a number of lessons which may inform future efforts and potentially in respect of emerging technologies such as AI. Uh, I reflect some of these in a recent paper which contends that we can identify trends or phases across policies aimed to support the adoption of technology in schools and that more recent phases reflect a greater level of pedagogical maturity than what was the case previously. In essence, informed by previous not so successful attempts, we now have a greater understanding and appreciation of the complexity of technology adoption in schools and education. Uh, firstly, we now have a greater understanding of the significance of the human actors, uh, you know, the teachers, the school leaders. Early attempts reflected a more technocentric understanding that the technology itself was a catalyst for change or improvement. You know, that simply we put a computer in the classroom and that sort of magic would, would, would happen. <laughs> Secondly, attempts to embed technology were often driven by actors and stakeholders external to education and underpinned by political and economic reasons. We now have a greater appreciation of the importance of co-creation based approaches and of the coordination of various stakeholders in what is a fragmented and complex educational landscape. And thirdly, we know that technology adoption and implementation is not straightforward and linear, and that implementation and adoption is significantly contextually bound. So school culture, existing practice, the wider school ecosystem, including the influence of key players, all have a significant bearing on, on the version or interpretation of, of technology that's enacted at the school level. So finally, and I suppose in effect, the summation of the previous points, we now know that technology adoption is complex and takes time. And the, uh, the Gartner uh, hype cycle as uh, presented on the, on the next slide here, uh, you know, we're, we're probably familiar with that. And we know that it's intended to represent a technology's life cycle, but it also provides a reasonably accurate representation of the trajectories of technology within education with the need for time and learning reflected on the maturity access. So that brings us to uh, AI. Uh, and I think we can reasonably contend that AI represents a third wave of interest in technology and education. Um, and, you know, as we know, there are other emerging technologies um, as they're referred to, including the, 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 the realities, including virtual and extended reality. There's also significant interest in robotics currently, uh, but AI is receiving the greatest level of, of interest and attention in, in my view. Um, and like with the previous technologies, we can see the hyperbole and expectation evident in some of the literature re how it might solve all the problems of education. Um, we also have those who very legitimately draw our attention to the significant issues and concerns which surround AI, particularly issues relating to ethics and privacy. 
However, in uh, rationalising somewhat the competing perspectives, I'm thankful for the diplomatic and good counsel of Janrick in 2017, who, as per this slide, advised that rather than asking whether in 50 years' time there will be a human or a robot teaching, we should be asking what kind of combination of human and artificial intelligence we will be able to draw on in the future to provide teaching of the very best quality. So like with a lot of issues and opportunities, uh, we need to find a middle ground. Uh, we need to eke out what opportunities there exist for AI to be utilised in ways which enhance education whilst being mindful of and addressing our legitimate concerns. So that brings us to the, uh, the next slide, um, which addresses what we, what we mean by, by AI. And this is no uh, trivial or straightforward question. And many understandings and definitions abound, including the two that I've uh, included here from McCarthy in 1956, who I believe was the first to use the term, uh, and more recently from Baker and Smith in 2019. And personally, I find it useful to think of AI as any machine or application which can simulate intelligence. So, you know, the, the idea of simulating, uh, you know, is, is, is significant or important to me. Um, obviously, based on the, the, the significant underpinning data and the related uh, algorithms and so on and so forth. Um, the definitions here, I think, are significant for two reasons. Uh, you know, firstly, they indicate that artificial intelligence as a concept is not actually something new, uh, although most of the emphasis on it has been in, in, in recent years. And secondly, that there is no one universally agreed understanding or definition of it. And this understandably poses challenges to having a shared and common understanding uh, regarding it and communicating with it. So put simply, it's difficult to pin down with, uh, you know, exactly what we mean or understand by AI. So that said, um, the possibilities regarding AI in education tend to be categorized or framed in three main ways, and there is general agreement uh, readies. Um, so firstly, the student or learner supporting uh, means of, of AI, uh, teacher supporting, uh, and thirdly, uh, system supporting. Um, and I, you know, student or learner supporting uh, is, is uh, what we typically think of as, as constituting AI. So intelligent tutoring systems which adapt to learner performance and provide feedback. Uh, other examples which are learner facing can make learning more accessible, such as language learning and translation tools, automation of subtitles and voice to text. Teacher facing or supporting tools are those which can automate some routine teacher tasks, such as provision of marking and feedback. Uh, identification of appropriate resources based on learner characteristics, often referred to as recommender systems, and the identification diagnosis of problem-based areas based on student activity or performance. Uh, System-facing tools relate to using data across schools. So, you know, within, for example, a national system of education to identify, for example, trends in assessment performance, uh, to inform resource allocation, and to support uh, guidance type activities. And in addition to these three areas of learning with AI, DU in a recent publication also suggests learning for and learning about AI, uh, in addition to more general learning about our learning uh, processes. So finally, um, I'm going to address what I see as some of the particular challenges of AI adoption in education. It's obviously not an exhaustive list, uh, but addressing these kind of areas may go some way off uh, towards smoothing uh, the path of adoption. Uh, firstly, I think we should aim to reach some sort of shared understanding of AI, uh, recognizing that it is not a single technology, but a range of technologies and methods, um, and what its affordances and limitations are in certain contexts. 
Also, what pedagogical approach or theoretical underpinnings is it informed by? Uh, there is an idea that AI is something which is, it's a bit out there. Uh, and I think we need to demystify this as a step towards making it meaningful and accessible uh, to educators. Um, secondly, I believe we need to address the fear factor around AI. And for me, this is uh, twofold. It's firstly around alleviating the concerns around uh, data, privacy and ethics, the perceived risks related to AI in education. And secondly, around trust in the data and modeling on which AI-based platforms are based, recognizing that AI is only as good as the data and the modeling on which it is based. Um, we also need educator input into the modeling, recognizing that AI has mainly been a maths, engineering, computer science-based uh, discipline to date. And finally, I think we need to develop the accessible platforms and applications uh, to make teacher and educator engagement with AI tools uh, possible, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in an easy and, and meaningful way. Thank you. Hey, thanks a million, Keith. And um, what I'd say is possibly if you have questions for Keith, possibly hold them and, and we'll work our way through the, through the talks first. Um, Keith, just drawing on your, fly, your slides there, I think the words that I personally resonate is this idea of external actors. I think that's a huge aspect mm -hmm. of it. Uh, they don't, they have black hearts in an awful <laughs> lot of these situations and they're not interested in the rigor, which you also brought up, and the co-creation. To me, that's the three that I, I think really resonate there. So, um, so moving on from Keith's fantastic insight into possibly where we are right now, what we want to do is move on with Vinny to have a look at, say, well, what, okay, there's the stage for us, but what, where can we go from here and what, what might we be able to do moving forward? So, Vinny. So what I want to do is, is, is go slightly different direction and say, okay, well, what about AI? What's it transforming? What is it really like? Uh, where is it working? Where is it not working? Because we know it's not working in various places. And then arrive at where Keith is and say, well, okay, what, what, what way does that connect into education as we need, as we see it? Um, so first thing I'd say is it's it's impacting in all sectors of society, from education to healthcare, from social to to, to governance. Um, it's really changing the way we work today. A lot of the time it's under the covers. A lot of the time you don't actually know it's working uh, on behalf. But on the other hand, there are a number of tools-based AIs where we can actually uh, control it. I take the example is that most people believe they understand how to use a car, how a car works. In fact, they don't because a car has multiple computers in it and multiple uh, very complex engineering. But they have three, two or three pedals in the steering wheel. And that's we, we then now know how we can control a car. We, need, we haven't reached that stage in AI yet. But that's where we need to go. We need to go where to, to where the AI is working for us, but also where we feel we're in control of it. So where is it going at the moment? Well, certainly in, in healthcare, probably the ones we're seeing most of is image analysis, really being able to pick out uh, abnormal um, tissue cells or abnormal images and be able to quantify them and be very accurate in, in, in terms of training. Again, it's all in, uh, data driven and it supports and diagnostic support. I would say that one of the things about AI is a lot of times when people are developing first AI, they try to make AI autom um, automated decisions all the time. And actually 
I think that as humans, we don't always appreciate that. I think as humans, we, we have a skill to, to bring and a decision to make. And so how can AI be more shaped to actually help us as distinct from to automate, which then becomes difficult for us to actually use when it, when it maybe isn't as accurate as you want it, or we want to intervene in a different way, or where we have more context, uh, which is, changes our decision. If we take um, AI in financial sectors, it's really um, been focused in, in, area, in very successful areas, fraud detection, risk analysis. Um, again, the positives, really good at recognizing things. Slight negatives, sometimes it's too fast in the sense that it can make an adjustment and then all of a sudden that adjustment makes another and all of a sudden you get a jitter effect. And actually understanding that actually the speed at which it makes decisions is one of the reasons why you can't partner with AI. You cannot be a, a complete equal with AI because it'll always think faster than you. So either you're in control or it's in control. And once you understand that, actually, then you can actually collaborate with it. So we need, we need to think a little bit about that. Um, anyone interested, really good book by uh, Ben Schneiderman on, on, on this particular issue. Um, in agriculture, we're seeing it uh, in farmland monitoring, in yield management. Again, it, it's it's the idea that doesn't matter what the media is, AI can understand it and transform it and, and, and make data on it and then make decisions or suggest decisions. In social entertainment, uh, my own area is personalization. Um, and I have to be careful in the sense that personalization can be really powerful. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about later about how it's been used in education, um, but it can be really powerful. But again, it comes with health warnings. If you personalize in an echo chamber, you can change people's and polarize people. So what happens is if you, if you uh, have someone in a social media environment and you give them one message and one set of, of, of values, they will gravitate toward the center of that. Then if I increase one side to the right, for argument's sake, you'll graduate, uh, begin to move right as well. Before you know, you've moved down the spectrum. And I can do with others, I can move them up the spectrum. And that's what happens when social media polarizes. And we've seen that around the world today, where you, know, where you would normally see a full round of 360 opinion. In fact, you're getting a diet of very specific opinion where that uh, solidifies perhaps bias. So it's a really, really powerful thing, really, really good, but it's got to be carefully uh, used and, and, and implemented. And then in the workplace, uh, we're seeing it more and more. Um, conversational agents are probably one of the things that most people are beginning to become aware of. This, these are the bots that you're seeing on websites and so forth. They're quite <coughs> fragile at the moment. You know, take two or three interactions and then it says, I'm going off to get somebody. Uh, but rea in reality, they are becoming stronger and they will become much more um, uh, commonplace in, in, in the future. And performance analysis, is, is, uh, again, looking at everyone's performance and looking at how they can, uh, how it can intervene to support. What are the fears and concerns? Well, one of the fears uh, that was articulated before was making humans as appendages for the computer, whereas somehow we're being managed by the computer, we're being managed by AI. Um, and that's what the image is, is looking to, 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 to uh, indicate. I would argue this is most of the time it's poor AI, uh, it's poor uh, deployment and poor implementation or, or, or um, malevolent imp implementation. It can be a, a, um, a way in which people might want to introduce it, but to be honest with you, the movement now is more towards human-centric AI, where the human's design and problems and issues are in the center 
and you, you shape the technology to really um, empower the human. That's where the drive is uh, um, at the moment. The second um, people, thing that people worry about is displacement of jobs. Um, and the fact that AI perhaps can do uh, certain things um, faster, more efficiently, more, more cheaply. Um, and the answer is that that is true in certain circumstances. But that was true when the computer was first introduced. That was uh, for every technology um, wave, that's been the same problem. Um, what's actually happened is we've created more employment because it creates new jobs at higher levels. It also creates new opportunities. So yes, it's transformational, but the, the wave goes with it. Um, you know, I, 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 the, the standard com comment is in, in the 1920s, you know, the, 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 the greatest uh, number of people employed in a, in a specific uh, role was as a bellhop. In a, in a lift elevator. We don't have them anymore and we don't really want them anymore. You know, so, so, yeah, people were worried about that. So there are some jobs that actually should be retired. And, and I think that this creates more opportunity. Last part is, does it get in the way of the humans? And, and this is probably the, the key thing going forward. And this is one of the things that we're kind of bringing out in this talk is that actually it's really important that AI understands the stakeholders and works with those stakeholders and for those stakeholders, as distinct from trying to automate those stakeholders. And that's frequently where the technologists feel, oh, it solved this problem, rather than actually getting the interdisciplinary team around the table to actually shape the solution in a, in a way that actually is sustainable and actually will work. Um, by 2023, 47% of all learning management systems will have AI embedded within it. Um, so it's coming anyway. The question is, what is it doing? A lot of times when they say it's AI, it's still rudimentary. It's, it's basically data analytics, it's statistics, uh, and a plus plus. Um, but it is coming in. It is analyzing and transforming content. It is enhancing the engagement with the, with the learner or with, with, the, with the tutor or whatever. And it is looking at that data and governing it in, in certain places and making it um, secure. The kind of things we're seeing now is learning analytics, so people can you know, analyze the performance, competency modeling and assessment, meaning that what are the skills that you're trying to engender and how does that map to what you, the, the course was originally trying to um, achieve and looking at the, at the um, combination of the two. So I'm just going to admit somebody here. Um, personalized adapters where I work. Um, and really what people, in case you're interested, in personalization, what we're looking at is we're not necessarily saying everyone has totally different objectives. They can have different objectives and the personalization can support that. But even if you all have the same end goal you're looking for, your learning path might be different. And that's because your prior knowledge is different. That's why your, your learning preferences are different. In, you learn, each learner is individual. Um, and what we actually have seen, and I've done it for the last 20 years, looking doing uh, different experiments on it, the weaker learners benefit the most that tail in the class really begins to shift. Why? Because they get the support they need and the attention they need. Where the, actually it's the, the top performing students, unless you uh, are careful in terms of how you implement it, they won't benefit as much because they're, they're probably good learners or they're experienced in the area. They will learn anyway. What we do know is that with personalization, we can push them further and, ex and, and suggest more advanced topics so that they stay in, involved, but they can go further. So it's about lifting all boats, but certainly the impact we're seeing at the most is, is in, in, in um, the lower 50% of, of, of the class. Um, 
I include immersive technologies as part of AI because it can't exist without it and it uses the same technologies underneath. Um, and we're, we're seeing multiple forms of immersive technology and we're only beginning to really understand the effect of immersion, um, both in terms of engagement, in terms of the immediacy. Um, if I take one example uh, of video-based immersion, not even 3D now, just video-based immersion, um, the behavior of individuals, even though they will say, I would behave this way, I will always do it right, when they're in the environment and they're talking to effectively piece uh, video, they actually revert to the normal behaviors. And we can see that. So it's very, very useful for particularly uh, any sort of immersive skills and human skills um, in terms of learning. Uh, Game-based, as we said, uh, and, and, and these virtual chatbots and so forth are, are coming. And I just, I'll just re-emphasize what, what, what Keith said earlier. You know, we tend to think of them as those tools which are teaching, student teaching, which is really designed to support the learner directly, those which are supporting the teacher, uh, which in terms of, of diagnostics or management and so forth, and those overall uh, looking after the whole overall educational system, things like the data mining for resource allocation, diagnosis of learning difficulties, all of those uh, sort of difficulties. And we're really seeing, like in the, the Nestor report came out in 2019 now, um, education rebooted, exploring the future of AI in schools and colleges. And that particularly looked quite deeply at what was working and what was just beginning to work and, and how we can ensure that we get where we want to go better. The OECD report in 2018 also looked at futures, uh, future of education and skills. And it looked through this idea of student assistance, diminishing the gaps between different economic, socioeconomic groups. This is what AI can support in 24 seven support of providing access to knowledge and information to, for disabled students and those with additional learning educational needs, personalized learning, individualized learning, and, and, and supporting collaboration. From the teacher assistance, it's changing the nature of what's taught by the teachers, but also assessing and monitoring the student progress in conjunction with the teacher and planning future teaching and interventions. And again, it's there to support the teacher. It's not there necessarily to take over from the, the teacher. And the other thing is that's important here is that we know that that context is king in this situation. Uh, the, the context of the learning it becomes really, really vital. And AI may not know that context. That's why in those situations, you do have a tutor to be able to intervene. One of the things that's fundamental, anyone who's studied education has seen this, um, uh, Biggs's um, constructive alignment, but the idea that in any course you develop, the learning outcomes need to be in sync with the teaching methods that you're applying, which are consistent with the way you're assessing. And you've got to think of that triangle um, anytime you're just de designing a, an educational intervention. Different people look at different, but one of the things we're going to look at today is, is how can we re-look at and uh, re-evaluate assessment? Because currently assessment at the moment tends to be very skills-based. tend to focus on what are the skills we're trying to learn. We actually think that that's one place where AI can really begin to have an impact. So whether it be formative assessment or a recognition of, of, of patterns of learning, it has real potential. Where the pitfalls, you've got to watch out for bias. Keith said that earlier. Too much trust in automation. Um, as anyone, as people have seen, uh, where the AI systems can generate essays on particular topics, 
and have been actually submitted by students and corrected and given marks. Um, so, so we do have to be somewhat, and, and also there's this balance between surveillance and assessment. Um, you know, when I was explaining to people the way, how AI works, whereas it's, it's, it's monitoring what you're doing, that can be creepy. As a learner, do I really want to, you know, I, I need trust and I need transparency to know what is uh, being looked at and do I have the right to have it white or is it just for that education exper um, uh, experience? And they are all your rights, that's under GDPR. So you know, within education, we have to be very careful about this. We need to be transparent and explain it. And we need to have the human in the loop and we need to have the context of that learning embedded because the AI may not know about that context. They may know about the learner or whatever, but, but an experienced teacher, they, oh yeah, that, but that always happens at this stage. Actually, I, I, I will worry about that later or whatever it might be. So there's, there's room really there for enhancing from the teacher's perspective. I'm gonna wrap it up there. I don't wanna take too much time, but it gives you a feel for what AI can do, um, where the pitfalls are, and I'll stop there. Great, thank you so much, Vinny. Um, and again, just going back to your earlier point about the, the way other industries have absolutely leveraged these AI systems and, the, and it's just that there is still that work to be done in ours. I know that the old slide used to show the car and the uh, operating theatre and say the mechanic and the surgeon from 100 years ago wouldn't know what to do in those environments. Yet, if you put them in a classroom, they'd say, who painted the blackboard white and then get on with it. So <laughs> we haven't really leveraged it as well as we might. So thanks a million. And now I'd like Chen to share uh, her research now on an innovative approach on how to actually move on from Vinny uh, and, and what he's sharing with us into some practical research around how we can do deep assessment um, in self-directed learning environments. Thanks, Peter. Uh, so uh, my part of the discussion will focus on the third wave of AI innovation and human-centric AI, just, just now we mentioned. So uh, specifically, we'll look at the state-of-art uh, deep learning techniques and uh, uh, how we can leverage these techniques to develop new assessment measures uh, in self-directed learning. Uh, and what we call here is deep assessment. Uh, so, following the convention of uh, Tech Talk series, I would like to start with uh, one question. Uh, that is, does good learning practice always lead to good learner performance? So, in other words, um, do we always find that good score students always have the good learning habits and the poor performance students have the very poor learning habits? So, why do uh, sometimes we find some students seem to perform really well with less work? And what do they do in common to like contribute to their learning efficiency? So to answer all these questions, we really to, uh, need to look at uh, the learner's behaviors and specific from like different uh, aspects and to see whether we can find the differences and the commonality among these learners. So uh, as an attempt to figure uh, all these questions, we did a case study. Uh, in self-directed uh, language learning. So where we have the learners use a mobile phone app uh, and to, to learn English. So uh, the mobile phone app will have the intelligent children system inside uh, where it records all these uh, uh, users' uh, actions 
And here's a quick example is for one, uh, one particular learner, we have the, the system will record at the specific time uh, timestamp and this learner answer which questions and whether it's correct or not and uh, when did that happen. So the number of uh, all these actions, even for one particular learner can be very large. For example, here for this one learner, we have uh, 40K uh, records of these actions inside the system. And here I put another histogram for just one specific sphere. Uh, here is a bar, uh, the bar chart uh, in this figure represents a number of the questions he did the weekly basis. And the green part are the number of the correct answers and the blue part are the uh, wrong answers. And the line chart are the co uh, correctness rates. So two observations here. Uh, first of all, we can see that the number of uh, the questions this learner did is very irregular. Sometimes he can, be, he can do like 300 questions a week, sometimes just uh, not at all. And also the performance level uh, in terms of accuracy is also not very steady, right? Sometimes uh, up and down. So uh, typically in whatever system, we have very different learners uh, with very different behaviors. We have a uh, very active one actually, uh, just now what we, we saw that is tend to use the app almost every week. And we have the learners like uh, start very intense practice in the beginning and stop a while and restart it. And we also have the learners that only use uh, the app very occasionally. And we have learners only practice only a few weeks over one year and a half. So now the question is, given all these kind of very different um, learning habits, how can we assess the learners? And next, we're going to see how deep learning uh, come into the story and can help us to, uh, to derive new assessment methods. So the first uh, finding I put here, uh, actually derived by our uh, deep learning model, uh, is one view uh, for 10K students here. This is uh, what you can see is a 3D model. And one point is representing one student. And the color uh, is the average score. So let's look at uh, it more closer uh, in this bigger picture, uh, in this bigger figure. And what we can see at, uh, first of all, we can see the color gradient here. Uh, recall that uh, the color represents the average score. So roughly we can see on the top, uh, top students. At the bottom, the purple one represents students with the lower scores. And another uh, thing is that, so I put the, like the four learners we, we just uh, showed, and we can see that they are uh, locating uh, very different positions in this model. And specifically for the last one, uh, which is the user 88151, uh, is located very, very uh, far away from the majority of learners uh, because we believe it's because he practiced far less than the average, average, uh, the average learners in the system. And here I also split the histogram into three different uh, kind of aspects. So we have better clue about what happened. Uh, uh, again, it's, it's like the first column is uh, weekly correctness rates, and the second is the count of questions, and the third is the week number of the practices. And we align them with the same axis. We can see the curves from the shape. We can see they are very different. And so how did we derive such a model? Uh, the, the key idea behind what I call it organic search with artificial intelligence. 
why this called organic? Because there's, uh, there's no human labor is needed inside this deep learning model. Uh, by that, uh, I mean that uh, we don't need the predefined rules how, uh, what do good learner look like uh, in the modern process. So it's fully automated without additive human bias. Uh, is this that we can provide a very different, a very complementary perspective uh, uh, for assessment? And so what the deep learning model do is actually purely just digest all these uh, uh, observation of behaviors and compress them into uh, low dimension space where we can visualize all these patterns. And this pattern just like appear organically in this space uh, after uh, the deep learning model like digest all this information to us. So a second uh, finding of our model is that we can use uh, what we call the progress vector to uh, identify the richness of behaviors. Recall that in uh, whatever coordinate system, a vector is defined by uh, two ending points, the start and the end, and the direction. And so we find back all the learners along this direction and to see their behaviors. So here are two quick examples. It's two, uh, two group of learners. The left side is the learners uh, with a degraded performance and the right side is the learners with improved performance. So again, uh, one row is one learner. So uh, let's look at the left side first. So what we can see is on the top, uh, the top learners, uh, the performance, the, the first column, when we see that, uh, uh, very carefully about all these curves, so we can see uh, the change are very smooth. So from the top, the performance is almost flat, and to the bottom, we can see the learners actually having a kind of the trend of a dropping performance. And so back to our questions, do good learners always have good learning habits? And the answer, because here is no. <laughs> Let's look at the, the, the very bottom one on the left corner and uh, uh, the bottom one. And so we can see, even though the average score is actually quite high, I think 0.8, mm -hmm. but we can see very clearly uh, the trend of the drop-in performance. And again, on the right side, we can see another set of uh, the learners with all, uh, all uh, improved performance. Uh, if you look at the first column, the correctness rates. And again, to back to our question, do uh, Poor performance learners always don't have the bad habits. Uh, the answer is not really either, right? So let's look at uh, the, the, the bottom right side corner. And even though these learners have very poor average score, but we can see from the behavior point of view, it's very good even like compared to the top one. So back to our same um, human-centered AI. So what we've seen just now is the capacity of the uh, of our deep learning model, where we, we think that uh, the AI algorithm knows everything, but understand nothing. <laughs> so it knows everything about the student behaviors, but it understands nothing about the context. And what it actually do is just compress all this information of behaviors into compact visualization so we can try to figure out. That's why we really need uh, our human instructor in this loop, in this tutoring loop, uh, which we call human in the loop tutoring methods, where we have this uh, AI human dual uh, teacher model. Uh, the AI will help uh, uh, our human instructor to find attention back. 
uh, in the sense that the helping them to find out uh, where are the, uh, who are the learners that need help. And so that the human instructor can find out uh, the problems in terms of, for example, the family, emotional motivation, and try to do the proactive intervention uh, for the students. And uh, hopefully we can see the kind of feedback uh, with the AI uh, visualization after they do uh, the intervention. So in terms of application, it uh, really depends on the different contacts. We, we, we put the three types of users here. For the teachers, uh, teachers know the specific type of skills and also overall context of the class. So uh, to the goal to integrate such a deep learning models, we try to help them to amplify their productivity and help them to broaden the learner potential. And for the learners, the context is different um, because learner, each, each learner knows their own like, situation of motivation and the emotional factors, right? So the goal of integrating such uh, deep learning models is to um, building, like, for example, more uh, gamification mechanism for them to build uh, better confidence. And for educational researchers, because they know um, in terms of one uh, uh, one set of uh, experiments, they know the learner and teacher's context. So uh, the goal of integrating deep learning model can be good for the pedagogical design. And so last but not the least, the caveats and the pitfalls. And um, apparently that's what we've seen that there's a lot of behaviors that matter to inside system. So we really need the transparency when using uh, the different uh, models. And second of all, uh, we mentioned again, and the context is very important to, to get the interpretation of these behaviors. Uh, and the third of all, the visualization and the communication of such a matter to different audience, to teachers, uh, learners, researchers, really need a very different uh, mechanism and the AI, uh, AI models, this interface uh, to design for them. Yeah, I guess I will stop here. So <laughs> well, we can open for discussion for more details. Thank you.